Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Today on Inside Politics, two major breaking stories out of the Middle East. Another massive blast at a refugee camp in Gaza. We're getting new video showing the catastrophic damage as people dig through the rubble searching for bodies. We do not know yet who is responsible. This is the same camp that Israeli forces struck yesterday. We're also covering a huge breakthrough. Civilians are now leaving Gaza for the first time since Hamas attacked Israel. Hundreds of foreign nationals and injured Palestinians are waiting to move through the crucial Rafah border crossing. U.S. officials believe more than 5,000 could ultimately be allowed to leave as part of a deal brokered by Qatar. We have CNN reporters across the region covering the latest on all of these stories. Melissa Bell is in Cairo. We start with Jeremy Diamond, who is near the Gaza border in Ashkelon. Jeremy, what do we know about this second blast today? Well, Dana, for the second day in a row, a massive blast appears to have hit the Jabalia refugee camp inside Gaza. This is the largest refugee camp in Gaza, uh, historically linked to refugees who fled uh, the 1948 war and were displaced as a result of that war. Uh, This blast, as of now, uh, we understand there is catastrophic damage at this site. It happened in the Fallujah neighborhood of the Jabalia refugee camp, and the images of the destruction are very similar to the images that we saw yesterday uh, in the Jabalia refugee camp. In that strike yesterday, we believe, based on eyewitness accounts and doctors at a nearby hospital that hundreds of individuals were injured and killed in that strike. Uh, As of now, the Israeli military has not uh, confirmed whether or not uh, they were responsible for this latest blast. Uh, But, uh, of course, it does happen as the uh, death toll inside of Gaza, Dana, Dana is uh, rising, continuing to rise with more than 8,700 people having been killed thus far in these three-plus weeks of war inside the Gaza Strip. Far too many of them, Dan, as you know, include them, include women and children. And Jeremy, more broadly, what is the IDF saying about just how far they are pushing into Gaza as part of this military uh, incursion that they're involved in? Well, we just heard from a brigadier general, one of the commanders in the IDF, who says that they are, quote, at the gates of Gaza City, saying we are deep in the strip at the gates of Gaza City. Uh, This as we we have started to see some uh, public accounts of how far troops are moving inside the Gaza Strip. They have made it several miles, at least, uh, on the northwestern part of Gaza along the coastline. We also know that they're making another axis of advance on the northeastern quarter uh, quarter of, uh, of Gaza. And also, tr- tanks have been spotted at the southern end of Gaza City along the main road at a main junction there. And so it's very clear that uh, IDF uh, troops are moving in toward 
towards Gaza City, which is a Hamas uh, stronghold. Uh, today, uh, Dana, we also saw artillery positions. Uh, we went to several artillery positions along the border with Gaza. And what we could see is that several of the artillery positions that were further back, uh, those have been vacated by troops. Instead, it appears uh, that some of these artillery positions are moving closer to the Gaza Strip to uh, provide a support, artillery support, uh, to those troops who are inside. We know that in this war, perhaps more than any other conflict involving Israel and Hamas, Israeli troops are really making a pretty heavy use of close air support and also calling in uh, artillery fire on specific Hamas targets. They identify these targets, they call in that air support, uh, and then whether it is air support or uh, fighter jets or Apache helicopters then striking uh, those targets. Dana? Jeremy, thank you so much for that reporting. Now to the other big story out of Gaza today. For the first time since Hamas attacked inside Israel more than four weeks ago, the border with Egypt and Gaza has opened to let a small number of foreign nationals and injured Palestinians out. CNN's Melissa Bell is covering all of these developments from nearby Cairo. So, Melissa, first is who has been able to leave? A very small number of very lucky uh, civilians at this stage, Donna. We're talking about uh, a couple of hundred. We don't have the exact figure. Uh, earlier, it was just over 110, but we understand that that's gone up. Foreign or dual nationals. We don't have their nationalities, but these are some of the first uh, civilians to be allowed out. What's been remarkable about the Rafah crossing, and we spent much of the a day there yesterday is how little has gotten through either aid getting in or indeed anyone coming out until now we'd really only seen a handful of hostages released through this crossing so closed had it remained because of the huge complication of the many parties that need to be involved in anyone getting through and that is of course uh, israel hamas Egypt. Uh, this mediation uh, through Qatar and in coordination with the United States, really a remarkable breakthrough that we only really got wind of uh, this morning, that will allow all of the foreign and dual nationals that are trapped inside to make their way through the crossing. A really remarkable development, of course, huge uh, relief for all the families who are waiting for news of their loved ones. There is also, as part of the deal, uh, the possibility for the most severely wounded Palestinians to get out to get uh, emergency medical treatment. Uh, 81 are expected to make their way through the crossing day. They're being taken uh, to a field hospital that Egyptians have set up nearby. But again, we are talking about the lucky few. What we've also been hearing from the crossing today is that a further 28 trucks have gone in, Diana. That is a, a tiny proportion of what is needed inside. So the people that you're seeing coming through the Rafa crossing today and that you're going to continue seeing over the coming days, including those American nationals, are people that have been hoping, waiting to get through. Now, since this conflict began, they've been told early on to head south and that they would get through. They're finally getting through, but it has been a long and difficult wait, Donna. It sure has, but it is, uh, it is good news, and we will continue to monitor that. Thank you for that report, Melissa. I want to bring in Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. Lieutenant General Hurtling is a former commanding general for Europe and the 7th Army. Nice to see you again. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, can we just start where we ended with Melissa and talk about the fact that you do uh, have foreign nationals leaving Palestine, the Palestinian territory, leaving Gaza, I should say, and how yeah. long it has taken for this to happen? Yeah, I, I believe, Dana, that this is a strategic move by Hamas. They are releasing international uh, citizens as more condemnation comes against Israel by the world. 
uh, for some of the strikes. So they see it appropriate to get to garner more support for what they're doing and to heap more damage on the Israelis for continuous bombing and the kinds of attack. So the combination of releasing international citizens from Gaza and also the potential for releasing international hostages, non-Israeli hostages, I think is part of the strategic plan by Hamas. And General, uh, back to what we started with in this program. Yesterday, uh, there was a bombing uh, in, in Jabalia, that is a bombing that Israel uh, says that they they were responsible for in order to kill uh, Hamas terrorists. There was another blast at near that region today. We do not know who is responsible for that yet. We want to underscore that uh, at this point. But from your vast military experience and perspective, can you assess this? Yeah, a, a little bit, Dan. Dan. I'm not a, a crater analyst, but the first time I saw the pictures of yesterday's bombings and what are reported as today's bombing, it's a singular bomb, a precision device with a very large explosive. And because the crater is so big, it tells me that this is a hardened casing. The Air Force, the Israeli Air Force can deliver what they call blue, BLU bombs that have a hardened casing and an extreme penetrator to get underground before it explodes. So it doesn't explode on the surface like we've seen already with some bombs hitting buildings and then the buildings crashing down. These bombs were meant to go deep. And what you see not only around the crater, but you see some collapsed buildings. And that's not just architectural problems. That's that's a result of uh, of collapsing from the foundation. Well, so it tells me, number one, that evidently Israel had some very good targets in some underground tunnels. They're, they haven't given any information for this. And then to have a second strike when the world is beginning to condemn them tells me that they have some pretty good intelligence of the movement of the terrorists that are underground. So I, I can understand why the world is upset. There's a humanitarian crisis here, but also I can understand why these are being targeted the way they are. Yeah, and, and General Hartley, I'm sure you um, can understand as well that we are being very careful about uh, who was responsible for the second strike today until we know for sure. We know, we believe that it happened. We see that it happened with our own eyes. We don't know who is responsible for that. But going back to one of the things you said, let's just focus on what happened yesterday because we have more information about that, uh, about the, sort of the crater here and about the tunnels. And what it tells you that, uh, that this blast was so big and so deep, uh, what it tells you about how deep these tunnels likely are where Hamas was potentially where the leadership was located, where some of their maybe some of their um, headquarters are even located. Yeah, it, it isn't just the kinds of tunnels we've shown on CNN, Dana, where you see the single file. They also have meeting rooms under there. The Israeli intelligence have had this mm -hmm. kind of information since 2014. They went into some of these tunnels in 2021, the last time Israel went into Gaza, and they were amazed at how uh, you basically had an underground city. Exactly. So there are the passageways, but there are also rooms, places where uh, Hamas can store ammunitions that have been built up. And they are about, from all indicators, 
between 100 to 150 feet underground. So you have to have a pretty large penetrator to get there. And I think uh, after three or four weeks, based on what they learned in 2014, 2021, and now today with intelligence gathering, Israel knows that, that these tunnels are extensive. They're moving uh, fighters around under the cities and they are in areas like this neighborhood and also underneath hospitals that have not just human beings as shield, protective uh, facilities as shields, hospitals, schools, neighborhoods. So all of this is part of the way Hamas fights using that victim doctrine that I've mentioned before. Yeah, it's it's so manipulative and so crass. I mean, I kind of can't even think of another word to, to describe uh, the notion of doing that to your own people. Evil, evil, evils, yeah. evil will do it. Uh, General, thank you so much for your expertise. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dana. And with the death toll in Gaza continuing to rise, President Biden and his top national security officials are increasingly facing tough questions about Israel's commitment to minimizing civilian casualties. CNN's Priscilla, Priscilla Alvarez is live at the White House for more. Priscilla, what are you hearing from your sources at the White House about trying to balance uh, the commitment to Israel, the commitment to Israel's democracy and right to exist versus the criticism that the president is hearing from within his own party in particular about some of the tactics that Israel is using to retaliate against the terror attack in their country. Dana, it's certainly a delicate balance. And what the last 24 hours have shown is that the Biden administration is walking a tightrope in its support for Israel because they are both maintaining that Israel is trying to contain casualties while also grappling with the images of destruction coming out of Gaza, which is fueling public outrage. Now, these casualties weigh heavy here at the White House among officials as they ratchet up pressure on Israel to make sure that they are protecting innocent civilians in their fight against Hamas. And these concerns go all the way up to President Biden, who has also discussed this with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as uh, even this weekend in their call, again, saying that Israel has the right to defend itself, but that they also need to make sure that they are protecting innocent civilians at all costs. Now, aides to the president believe that these warnings are best stressed uh, and are most effective in those private conversations that they have with their Israeli counterparts. But the reality here for the White House is that they are facing this public outrage over the destruction in Gaza, the dire humanitarian crisis there, and that all of this risks eroding international support for Israel at a time where they need it. And so all of that is what the president is keenly aware of and what White House officials are monitoring as this continues to unfold. Dana. And Priscilla, real quick, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to go back to the region this week. That's right. This is his third trip to Israel. According to a spokesperson, he will be meeting with members of the Israeli government. But this will be the first visit after that ground invasion uh, or the expanded ground invasion that we saw in the last several days and also after this airstrike on that refugee camp. So get another important meeting for the secretary there in Israel. Priscilla, thank you so much. Appreciate your reporting. Joining me now for more reporting is CNN's Casey Hunt, PBS's Laura Barone Lopez and CNN's Natasha Bertrand, thank you all uh, for being here. I, I want to start with the president and the fact that, understandably, right after the uh, unbelievable attack that killed in a most brutal of way, ways uh, more than 1,400 people inside Israel, uh, he was incredibly 
uh, clear about what Israel could and should do, which is whatever they feel that they need to do. And his rhetoric has changed just a bit in recent times. I want our viewers to listen to some of the differences. Israel has the right to defend itself and its people. Full stop. Let there be no doubt. The United States has Israel's back. We will make sure the Jewish and democratic state of Israel can defend itself today, tomorrow, as we always have. If you have an opportunity to alleviate the pain, you should do it, period. And if you don't, you're going to lose credibility worldwide. We also have to remember that Hamas does not represent, let me say it again, Hamas does not represent the vast majority of the Palestinian people on the Gaza Strip or anywhere else. His position has not changed, no. but the incoming that he has taken has stepped up, particularly from within his own party, Casey. It has. I mean, and I think that, look, when I was listening to you kind of describe what happened, it was a massacre, right, that Hamas committed against um, Jewish people indiscriminately against civilians. And the president, the administration, and I think the world has been clear in saying, at least the Western world, has been clear in saying there is a difference between people who indiscriminately, indiscriminately kill civilians on purpose because they're trying to sow terror and people who are trying to achieve a military objective with military targets that results in uh, civilian casualties. However, it is very clear that the damage in Gaza is wearing on the psyche of the world. It is horrifying to see bodies of, of children pulled from the rubble. It just is, no matter uh, you know who you are or where you come from. And it does seem to me that there are there there are a couple things. I mean, there is geopolitical pressure on the president, on the United States, and on Israel uh, to do a little bit more to try and minimize these casualties. But as you point out. Um, there is increasing, uh, there's an increasing challenge from President Biden's mm -hmm. left. And he comes yeah. out of an old school Democratic Party, right? He has a longstanding relationship with Bibi Netanyahu that goes back yeah. years. People forget Bibi went to school here, et cetera. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. One thing I would um, point out yeah. is that not everybody in the Western world uh, said it was okay to criticize these terrorists who went into Israel, including some Democratic members of Congress. There was a resolution that passed overwhelmingly last week, uh, standing with Israel, but also criticizing the notion of terrorism about you know, beheading babies. And there were a number of Democrats who either voted no or voted present. And you see them on the, on the screen there. And they might be a, a sort of a small minority within the Democratic Party, but they represent a very vocal uh, group of progressives out in the, in the world in America right now. And I think that some of those Democrats would say that the reason that they voted no in part was because of their very strong criticisms of the Israeli government, not uh, because they don't think that it was a massacre, uh, which some of those Democrats have said that it was a massacre that occurred and, and condemned the action of of Hamas, but that because they are very strongly against the actions of Netanyahu and what they see as his even degradation of Israel's democracy and then his forceful attack now on Gazans and on civilians. Uh, but you're right, Dana, which is that the president ha may not have shifted his position, but he has shifted his rhetoric. 
and he has started to say more and more, and so have his national security advisors, and so has Secretary Blinken. All of them across the board have started to say uh, more and more that they think that there could, it could be a time for a pause in the fighting. They will not call for a ceasefire at all at this point, but that they think that there should be a pause. Uh, John Kirby of the NSC just said that yesterday because they are very aware of the fact that that seeing these uh, dead civilians in Gaza is something that, that they don't want to see and that they don't want to be. Occurring. Natasha, what are you hearing from your sources well, at I the think, State Department? I mean, this is exactly what the Biden administration was worried about in terms of the response, because, I mean, that is why they had been advising Israel to do a more limited ground operation, limited airstrikes, basically make this proportional because of the risk that the Hamas terror attack would be completely overshadowed by Israel's response. And that would in turn erode kind of international support for the Israelis. And so the message from the United States to them consistently since this attack happened has been, we support you, we, we support everything that you feel you need to do to eliminate Hamas. But now that they see this operation kind of having taken on a life of its own in terms of the administration really not having a ton of influence at this point over what the Israelis do. Yes, they took some of their military advice in terms of the airstrikes, in terms of the ground incursion. But as we have seen, I mean, there hasn't been a humanitarian pause. There haven't been some of these things that the administration has been asking them to do. And so that right now is the focus, is saying even if they're not kind of backing it up with actions, threatening to withdraw support, for example, from Israel, they're still advising them to be careful. Guys, stand by. Thank you so much on this conversation. We're going to have much more coming up, especially on the breaking news. A massive blast hit the largest refugee camp in Gaza for the second day in a row. I'm going to talk to an IDF spokesperson, Major Daron Spielman, next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Inside Politics. There is a lot of news this morning out of the Middle East. For the first time since the war began more than a month ago, the border between Gaza and Egypt has opened up to allow a small number of foreign nationals and injured Palestinians to get out. And also a massive blast hit Gaza's biggest refugee camp for the second day in a row. 
The Israeli Defense Forces say yesterday's strike on the camp targeted a top Hamas commander who was hiding among civilians. Joining me now is IDF spokesperson Major Doron Spielman. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, first question is about this blast today. CNN is reporting that it was a second blast that hit the Jabalia refugee camp. Is the IDF responsible for this blast? Thank you for having me, Dana. Uh, I would say that all of our operations right now in Gaza, ultimately the responsibility lies at the feet of Hamas. We cannot ignore that behind all of this situation, especially Jabalia refugee camp, where Hamas is embedded, literally embedded, as we said before we went into Gaza, get ready because Hamas is embedded within the civilian population. There are terrorists that are currently firing rockets at Israel. I think it is fair to say that all of the responsibility yeah. is at Hamas's we, feet. We Our soldiers are operating. Yeah. We haven't forgotten what started this and it was a terror attack inside Israel. Uh, my question is about this particular blast today, which is, did the IDF drop the bomb or shoot the missile or whatever it was that caused this blast? I don't have specifics, Dana, on this exact incident. It will probably be coming out in the coming hours. What I can tell you is that if it did happen, and of course we will come forward and say mm -hmm. if it did happen, mm -hmm. it is because there are terrorists that are embedded there. And we have to understand the situation. The IDF right now is fighting in face-to-face -face combat with Hamas terrorists inside Jabalia. They are running into tunnels underneath medical clinics, inside universities. All of a sudden you see wanted terrorists that are going into schools. They don't come out again because there's a terror network underneath. And what we saw yesterday when we eliminated one of their top terrorists is that there was a second implosion of an entire tunnel network. And this is the same network that we see Hamas taking selfies of themselves, running on their way to carry out terrorist attacks in Israel. They purposely put it there. And therefore, even if we did hit this site, Ultimately speaking, the collateral damage, and this is our very clear, is on Hamas's shoulders. Going back to yesterday's strike, which you say was the IDF, can you provide proof that your strike was successful in killing the senior Hamas leader that you said Israel targeted? All of our information, all of our intelligence information uh, points to the fact that, yes, that terrorist was eliminated along with around 50 other terrorists that were all holed up in that exact same area. We have to understand that this was the planning terrorist segment that actually armed and trained and sent the morning of October 7th, the terrorists who came into Israel and brutally murdered those people. All of our intelligence pointed to them being there. And from what we understand, they were eliminated. Is there a way that you can show that to the world, that proof? Eventually, it will become clear if that terrorist does not resurface. If things happen under the ground. We eliminated the terrorist. We have confirmation. But you never know until time goes by. We will say yes, and we'll see as time goes by if he was eliminated. Certainly, we evaluated that his death and the death of 50 other terrorist commanders warranted that strike. We have to understand, again, that while we make decisions at all points in time, the complications of the IDF is to ask yourself, what is the amount of casualties that we are willing to endure, and this is a horrible thing to even have to think of, in order to kill the same terrorists that not only massacred our civilians, but that are planning to massacre them again. These things do not now, operate in a you vacuum. You know, that was a question I was going to ask you, which is, can you can you take us through the, the process of weighing that, uh, which is choosing to go forward, 
with an attack that you say was successful in killing Hamas leaders, knowing that there would be steep civilian deaths. How does that process work? Like most normal, rational Western countries of the world, putting Hamas terror organization aside, which has no assessment, it's the opposite assessment. You look at a military target and you, you evaluate, is this a credible military threat? In this case, you're looking at a person who is the leader of the entire area of the Gaza Strip. He's the battalion leader that sent in the forces into Israel to massacre. Our evaluation is, is that he is planning on doing this again. They have the exact same will. We hear Hamas spokesmen saying the exact same thing. Therefore, you have them in a certain area. And based on the intelligence that you have, you try to strike them with as little collateral damage as possible. But the question is, and I would ask the question to you, is what is the proportional response to a mass murder who's about to murder your country again? This is a very complicated and difficult decision to make. But at the end yeah. of the day, we know if we do not eliminate this person, the next 1,500 families, God forbid, are right around the corner. What are we going to look at them in the eyes and say, we didn't take out the terrorists? Yeah. No, Our I, first responsibility is I'm not saying civilians. it's not I'm not saying it's not complicated at all. I mean, I, I can't even begin to uh, understand how complicated it is. A doctor at the Indonesia hospital that CNN interviewed said hundreds were killed or injured in that blast yesterday. Is that accurate? We, at this point, every number that are that is put out by these doctors, with all due respect, and the health ministry, which what is, is the idea, completely believe? controlled by Hamas, we've seen, we don't have exact numbers yet, but what we have seen is that when we find numbers that are announced the next day by whatever governmental legitimate international bodies they are, they're usually a fraction of what Hamas says. We don't take anything that Hamas says for granted. What I can tell you is from our perspective, there should not be a single Gazan civilian in this area. You, you don't have exact numbers. Now. I know we it just happened to, yesterday, but do you have, have an reports. estimate? And will you have an we estimate? We don't have exact Eventually we will, but we do everything with checks and balances and we're not inside counting all the different areas like Hamas is supposed to be, like the international community is supposed to be. But I can take you back to the Al-Akhli hospital where they said there were 500 people killed. And it was committed by the IDF. Yeah. It wasn't committed by the IDF. And post numbers were between 20 and 40 killed. Now, even one person should not have been killed there, Dana, because we've been saying for two weeks to all Gazan civilians in northern Gaza, leave this area and move out of the yeah. way. The question is, why is Hamas keeping them there? What is their motive? They only have one motive. Because well, they are hoping their civilians die. So you and I will have this conversation. Yeah, yeah, That's, yeah. That is Hamas's motive no, it's, know, at it, the end of the I, day. It is, it is very crass. Uh, but there's also a reality that there are civilians dying, which is uh, very much impacting the uh, the way that the world sees this. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, hopefully you'll come back on and we'll talk more about that last point. Thank you so much. Major Daron Spielman, appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Up next, the new speaker's first full week, and he starts with his own battle to unbundle the Israel and Ukraine aid. Why is he doing that? What does it mean? Plus, George Santos is facing a vote to expel him from the House. Will he survive? The latest on Congressman Santos's future. The House is back in session and newly minted Speaker Mike Johnson is facing his first week of business with big challenges looming. He's trying to chart a course for aid to Israel. He's also having to deal with an expulsion vote and two center votes coming up tonight for a member of his conference. CNN Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill. Well, the first one is a member of his conference, that expulsion vote. 
doesn't seem like much of a honeymoon for Mike Johnson. Yeah, he's facing pressure. You can't even avoid this vote because a member can force a vote to expel a member of Congress by the way they drafted and they, the way the New York Republican freshman, the vulnerable Republican freshman, did is they're essentially forcing this vote, trying to go after one of their own because of the charges that George Santos has faced, charges that Santos has pleaded not guilty despite facing this federal indictment. Nevertheless, the vote is expected later tonight. And in order to, for this to succeed, it would require a support of two-thirds of the full House. We do expect all House Democrats to vote to expel George Santos. The question is going to be how many Republicans would vote for it. We expect that to be, they need to succeed, about 77 House Republicans to side with their New York Republican freshman to kick George Santos out of the House. At the moment, the expectation is that they will fall short of that because the House Ethics Committee announced just yesterday that they are still investigating the matter, that they will not make a final decision about what their recommendation is until November 17th or perhaps earlier. So a lot of Republicans will say, let's wait for the House Ethics Committee to make its decision, then we will decide about whether to kick out George Santos. But Dana, no, make no mistake about it, this is a very serious moment for Santos, for the Republican majority, for a seat that could flip to the Democratic side of the aisle, because if House Ethics re recommends expulsion, almost certainly more and more Republicans will seek to kick him out, and that could happen in a matter of just a couple weeks here. So this vote here will be telling to see how close they get to that two-thirds majority. Dana. Manu, thank you so much for that reporting. And uh, my colleagues are back here with me. Casey, I, I want to talk to both of you about not just Santos, but where the new speaker is right now and how he's approaching uh, the challenges that he has. And I think it's interesting that maybe as we speak, he's going to walk from the House side to the Senate side, engage in a discussion with his fellow Republicans in the Senate during their lunch about this aid where he says, let's separate it out, just Israel, have, have it paid for uh, with money that was going to the IRS. You have Mitch McConnell and other Republicans in the Senate saying, no, we don't want to do it that way. <laughs> don't want to do it that way. I mean, I think in some ways his inexperience is showing, and it makes sense that it would because he is the most inexperienced speaker in decades. Um, and he is going to have a learning curve to figure out He's got to move from the political ecosphere he lived in when he was a conservative congressman from Louisiana and all he had to worry about were his constituents in the conservative media bubble to someone who has a job that is a lot bigger and a lot different than that. Um, and it's going to take some time. He doesn't have the staff. He doesn't have the background. He doesn't have, I mean, you know, Dana, from covering politics for a long time, you start to develop a feel for where the pitfalls are, the landmines are, the things you have to avoid, the things you have to work on. Um, and he's got to develop an entirely new sensibility for that in this new job. And quite frankly, I mean, it's going to take time. And he doesn't really have a lot of it, especially since, you know, government funding runs out, which is oh, the yeah, next thing up that. after this. I didn't in even like mention two weeks. that. <laughs> kind of a big thing. There is that. I think that also, um, he, yes, he does lack experience, but he is doing what the majority of his conference wants him to, to, to do, which is, you know, the, the hardliners got someone in the speakership that is even more in line with them than Kevin McCarthy was, than Steve Scalise potentially would have been. Uh, someone who 
aligns himself with them on a, a host of issues. And on this, right now, the base, the Republican base, those Republican uh, congressmen are saying that they don't want to support Ukraine anymore, that they don't, uh, and, and that apparently also in this bill, it doesn't have any humanitarian aid for Gaza as well, which was in the president's initial request. So uh, yes, he's at odds with Senate Republicans, although there is some waffling among some Senate Republicans also in their support for Ukraine. But you're going to see him, you know, have to come face to face with Mitch McConnell, as well as Senate Democrats who consider this a totally unserious uh, proposal because of the fact that it's not something that any Democrats would support. And you have to have Democratic votes for it to get to the president's desk. I always want to be a fly on the wall in those lunches, right? Mm -hmm. This is one I definitely would want to experience and listen <laughs> to. Yeah, yeah, I know, all of us. <laughs> Thanks. You guys are amazing. This just in, Senator Bob Menendez is defending his right to view classified information after being indicted on federal corruption charges. All the details on this when we come back. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Just into CNN, Senator Bob Menendez, the New Jersey Democrat facing charges of acting as a foreign agent for Egypt, is defending himself after attending a classified briefing on Ukraine this morning. Manu Raju is the one who saw him uh, going into that briefing, or maybe it was coming out. Manu, what happened when you yeah. talked to him? Yeah, look, he has been facing very serious federal charging for alleging that he is conspiring to act as a foreign agent to help the government of Egypt. Now, he has pleaded not guilty to that, but he also did not attend a classified briefing in October over Israel, over concerns about these allegations that have been raised but this time was different. He walked into a classified briefing room to talk about the issues of Ukraine. And I asked him why he should be attending such a sensitive briefing that gives sensitive security information to senators. You didn't, weren't able to go to the last classified briefing because Schumer didn't let you. Why are you going to this classified briefing? First of all, you're wrong about that. He didn't say you can't go and he didn't not let me. So that's just the wrong or something. No. Excuse me. I'm so sorry, sir. Why, why did you go to this classified briefing? Because getting an update on Ukraine is something that's worthy as we consider the supplemental. But you're being accused of aiding a foreign government. Why is that appropriate for you to go to a classified briefing? You know, Manu, I know you've got to make news. Bottom line is, I'm a United States senator, I have my security credentials, and an accusation is just that. It's not proof of anything. So I asked the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Ben Cardin, if he was okay with him attending this. He said that he is still a United States senator, but he would not call on him to resign. Others have called on him to resign. Others uncomfortable at his attendance today, including Senator Chris Murphy, who told me they would have ongoing discussions about Bob Menendez. And Tim Kaine just simply told me, yes, he has concerns about Bob Menendez being at such a classified briefing amid these allegations. And I asked him why, Dana, and he declined to comment. Wow, Manu, that was quite a moment. Thank you for bringing that to us. Appreciate it, Manu. Thanks.
Coming up, can a California lawyer trademark the phrase, quote, Trump too small? We're going to tell you about a kind of a bizarre case facing the Supreme Court after a short break. What started out as a crude joke has made its way to the Supreme Court. And you know what they say about men with small hands? You can't trust them. To my hands, if they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee it. Still can't believe that actually happened, but it did. Florida Senator Marco Rubio took a jab at then-Republican rival Donald Trump, characterizing, as you just heard, his hands as small. And Trump took a swipe back during a 2016 Republican debate. If you can believe it, it is now the centerpiece of a Supreme Court case on whether a California lawyer can trademark the phrase, quote, Trump too small. The Supreme Court hears arguments today. Political activist Steve Elster wants to use the phrase without Trump's permission on these T-shirts. Elster says he wants to spread a message that, quote, some features of President Trump and his policies are diminutive. He wants to include the phrase on the front of T-shirts with the title, Trump's package is too small, on the back, followed by a list of policy areas that he says fit that characterization. Elster tried to register the trademark in 2018, but was rejected on the grounds that it would require written approval from Trump himself. A decision is expected next year. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 